fearsome giant snakes gobbling up native Florida species in the Everglades, and they could be primed to move further north, establishing themselves in every suburban backyard? Well, probably not. Not like that, anyway. But the Burmese python, among many non-native species that have thrived in Florida, poses some special concerns. We'll talk today to Larry Perez, author of Snake in the Grass, an Everglades Invasion, which is a riveting chronicle of the python's growing takeover of habitats in South Florida, but also part of personal memoir of his time removing the invasive snakes as a park ranger at Everglades National Park. You'll learn when it comes to what the pythons might be capable of, or where they might migrate to in the future. There's still a lot we don't know. I'm Christopher Nick, and welcome to Florida Book Club. I'm here with Larry Perez, author of Snake in the Grass, an Everglades Invasion and longtime National Park Service Ranger at Everglades National Park, but you're now in Fort Collins, Colorado. So welcome to the club, Larry, and thanks for being here. Hey, thanks, Chris. I really appreciate your interest in having me on the show. Uh, your bio in Snake in the Grass says you maintain a healthy fascination with snakes and lizards, so we have that in common. Uh, I noticed in the first chapter of the book you said that... Uh, you have a special place in your heart for anything scaly. So, um, you know, <laughs> definitely probably helped you in the, in the uh, uh, researching of this book and writing it. Um, so I wanted to start out thinking, like, I, I think most people know about the invasive python population in South Florida now in 2021. I think it's been a, an issue that has gotten a lot of media attention. There's attention given to other invasive species like green iguanas and tegus and monitor lizards and it's it, it seems in a lot of the the newspapers in the state anyway it's an ongoing discourse uh you know i can at least see in the miami herald and the tampa bay times but um and and, and you know there's been all sorts of media creative media that are lurid and melodramatic in the last decade uh, as opposed to you know more measured and objective tones which also exist when snake in the grass was published in 2012 what was your sense of how people perceived the presence of these snakes in, in the area, in the region? Yeah, there was, there was two kinds of schools of thought. There were the, the sort of insular group of folks that I was interacting with as part of my job, the scientists, the academics that were working on the issue that had a really nuanced understanding of kind of what was going on based upon available evidence. But then there was the rest of the public and, and they were getting most of their information about this particular issue, I think, through the periodic news reports that were coming out. and. Um, Oftentimes those were highly sensationalized. They were very boldly assertions that we're making. So honestly, I think for the general public at the time when I was writing this book and part of the impetus for writing the book um, was to counter this was I think that among the general public, there was just a, um, a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of unwarranted fear and perhaps a lot of misconceptions. Thanks. And that, that kind of presages my next question was what you were hoping to accomplish by writing the book. Cause it reads, partly as this really, you know, in-depth personal narrative or memoir. And it was part kind of research journalism, which, you know, I liked, and it's very accessible, especially with all the great maps and, and, and the photos. And the maps we'll, we'll get back to in a bit for uh, something. But uh, what impact on awareness of the problem did you hope to have yeah. at the time? Uh, was exactly to bring a little nuance to the conversation, which I felt was really black and white at the time. And the whole concept, the whole conversation around invasive species, like so much else in the world, is simply not black and white. And there's a lot of gradation and there's a lot of nuance. It just wasn't getting put out there. Um, so I hoped, and thank you for saying that word accessible. That's really what I was hoping for was to 
take the information that was in the scientific literature, but really make it digestible for general audiences. So that hopefully with a little bit better narrative structure around it, that people could really engage with the subject matter, understand what the nuances are, and, and really make more sensible decisions around the topic rather than be fueled by sound bites. And I will say my, my very early impetus for putting this down, I really believe that each and every one of us throughout the courses of our lives, every once in a while we get an opportunity, uh, usually it's dumb luck to be sitting front row on something that should be captured on paper, something that should be captured in some way, shape or form. And that was my situation out of dumb luck. I began working in Everglades National Park in December of 99. And it was in 2000 that the first published conjecture that we had an established population of Burmese pythons uh, was published. And so uh, I really had for those 15 years that I spent in the park a front row seat to the eruption of, of that invasive species over time. And I just wanted to write it down. Yeah, and, and, and capture it on film, uh, that photo of the gator bursting out of the stomach of the python. That's, I've seen that photo in a lot of different forums. So uh, I don't know, that had to be pretty crazy, I imagine. Uh, that certainly caught fire. And, and capturing all those things on, on, in videos and in photographs was really instrumental to documenting exactly what was going on at different stages along the invasion curve. Do you think that things have gotten better or do you think this invasive species problem in Florida is worse now than it was in 2012? Um, I think it's, it's probably worse now, but we don't know it yet, right? So South Florida is one of these biological invasion hotspots in the planet and in the United States specifically, uh, probably ranks third behind California and Hawaii. Um, and so we've got just a huge number of these things that uh, appear and when they appear, um, so unlike physical pollution, in which we have a chance of mopping up and cleaning up and re removing from the ecosystem, biological pollution is a little bit different. It's self-sustaining. So when these things establish, they typically are for good. We have, we have such few examples, planet-wide, of instances where we've been able to successfully eradicate a species. And we have exactly zero examples of being able to do so with any reptile species established on the planet. Zero. Once established, they're here. And so the invasion situation in South Florida is cumulative over time. And if it's not worse now than it was in 2012, just give it time. It will be because there's so many factors that converge in Florida that explain why we have this huge explosion of invasive species. But again, it's all about nuance. And I think maybe what you're asking is, are the, are the impacts worse now than they have been? And that's a different question. And um, I don't think we know. I don't think we know, especially when it comes to Burmese pythons. You know, I just mentioned 2000 was when we had the first published report, the first conjecture we had established. That means this year we're entering into our third decade learning about Burmese pythons. And despite that, there's still a lot that we just don't know. Now, I'm glad you made that distinction about the problem like of just numbers versus impact, because I think I've seen, I mean, you, you, you alluded to this in the book a little bit, but I, I've almost gotten the sense that we've become acclimated to their presence here, that it's starting to become normative. And, and uh, you know, I know this from my aunt and uncle live in Fort Lauderdale, and they're just the iguanas that live there. It's just, it's like they've always been there now at this point. You know, they're, they're so pervasive and they're, you know, seen everywhere. And, and you know, you wonder if you're going to get to a point like that with the pythons where it's just like, 
or you know, like we have with water hyacinth or any other invasive plant or animal, where it's just, well, they're here. Yeah, there was this there was this concept of creeping normalcy, right? That a successive generations uh, experienced the landscape that's already been invaded decades ago. Uh, these things are viewed as, if not natural, at least naturalized, right? And in in probably most cases that's probably okay. And that's because the vast majority of introduced species don't have demonstrable enough impacts to really warrant concern. If you think about all those, and you're on the West Coast, I know, Chris, I don't know if this is as pervasive a problem. Yeah. If you're on the Southeast Coast of Florida, I mean, if you go out around your home at night and there's a light anywhere nearby, you can almost rest assured that you're gonna run into one of the tiny little geckos that have been introduced into the area. And there's a number of different species from all over the world that have been introduced. And, by and large, when it comes to the impact of those little geckos, the impact on economics, the impact on human health, the impact on uh, ecosystem, which are typically the metrics by which we call something damaging or harmful, the effect of those geckos is negligible, right? And that's true for the vast majority of invasive species. And so, you know, this is, this is kind of the interesting departure. We've, for a long time, since the advent of invasion biology and the science that looks at, at, at invasive species, we've long just said non-native bad, native good, and made this sort of uh, binary judgment based upon origin. And instead, a lot of invasion biologists, which came out of my, my research for the book, a lot of invasion biologists say, hey, wait a minute, that's a really arbitrary distinction. And what we should be doing is maybe looking at the characteristics of the species and what the species does in the ecosystem and making a decision based upon that rather than the point of origin. Yeah, and, and, and part of, I think the focus on things like the Burmese pythons, because they're so big and they're so fearsome in their aspect that it's, you know, and so they, they lend themselves to such spectacle that it's, it, you know, there's at least this perception that they have this outsized impact, at least psychologically, but as you talk about, and as, you know, we read, they do have a very, you know, the depredations they've made on other species are incredibly noticeable and, and, and in really reshaping the, 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 the biome in a lot of ways. So, uh, you know, I, I think, like I said, it was, it was, it was, I'm glad that you, you, you gave that explanation because I think that that's, you know, really important. And, and since, and, you know, geckos can't kill people and even, even green iguanas as kind of nasty as they look and their temperament, they're not really dangerous. I mean, pythons, I think, you know, since we have this perception that they're dangerous, and they are dangerous, even though in my own research, uh, and uh, as, as you mentioned here, I couldn't find a single instance of a human being killed by a python in the wild. It's, it seems like it's all been escaped pets. Uh, here in Florida, that's certainly the case. Right, right. Yes, yes, I should qualify that. But yeah, but, but there's still the public, you know, I think they're probably one of the most publicly visible invasive non-native species because of you know, their size because of this outsize effect that they have, you know, and, and you're right, like a lot of biological invasions happen beneath our radar, like we don't even know they're happening. We're not even aware of them on a day-to-day -day basis. That's right. And, and, and I'm glad you brought up that point, Chris. I, I, I don't want people walking away from an interview like this thinking that I'm trying to equate, you know, the presence of Burmese pythons in the park or in South Florida with, with the tiny geckos on your wall. Clearly, there are characteristics about this particular invader that, that warrant some cause, uh, some pause, I should say, and some concern, and, and really do warrant continued investigation. One thing I always do want to caution people, though, is that even though we're talking about 20 years now that this invader, 
perhaps longer, but at least we've been aware of 20 years that this invader has been on the landscape. As biological invasions go, that's really still pretty nascent. And so that has implications for, are the impacts we're seeing right now, what we've seen as far as the heavy tolls on some of the prey species, are those a result that this invader landed and took advantage rapidly of a situation, increased rapidly in population, but we expect as we see in, in other invasive scenarios, that there will be a leveling off at some point and a rebounding and some sort of equilibrium maintaining. We just don't know. And, and it drives people crazy because we work on human time scales, but ecology is a little different. Got to have a little patience to really understand what's going on with this. What was it like the writing the book? I mean, what was the most enjoyable part of it, I guess? I mean, you know, a lot of it draws on your own experience, but obviously you were doing a lot of uh, outside research as well. Yeah, I would say, that, you know, the only thing that carries me through any sort of writing project is if I do have a profound personal interest. And as you mentioned, Chris, you and I, we've got the interest, which helped you to read it and helped me to write it. So uh, I really enjoyed the subject matter. I've I find what's happening in South Florida, you know, it is truly unprecedented. And so uh, being able to bring that to life in pages is, was interesting to me. That said, writing for me is highly laborious. So it took me several years to write that book. And, uh, and I, I always equate, maybe you can sympathize, I equate writing a book as the closest any dude's ever going to get to childbirth. It is a long gestation period. But when you get the book in your hand, it's like a delivery, right? It's fantastic. You got this shiny new baby. So um, I'm glad I did it. I, I really hope it helped advance the, the conversation on this topic. Um, and I am hopeful that in the future, I find myself in another front row seat to be able to deliver something of, of such consequence down the line. It's interesting. Sometimes you get that delivery of the product like well after you finished work. So it can seem like a, a delayed birth in that way. It's been my uh, experience. Um, and how much do you still keep, I mean, out of curiosity, keep up with or follow what's going on in Everglades National Park now from afar? I mean, do you think that the, you know, the current efforts to control the population, like they're, do, you know, proceeding along the right lines or, or taking, you know, a, a pretty effective tack on it? Because um, this article in Tampa Bay Times from 2018 was talking about some research that University of Florida had done that, you um, which echoed one of your assertions in the book, but you know, based on some of these uh, um, climate maps uh, that I think the uh, U.S. Geological Survey had had done, that saying that these pythons could be pushing further north in the future as temperatures warm, and you know, I I um I wondered if I know this sound like kind of two different things, but I mean, do, do you think are 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 the efforts and as we've said in the conversation, like people's mindsets, even the rangers and scientists and people, I mean, are they kind of adjusting their efforts in light of that? I think there are. And, and you know, I, I should preface my comments here by saying everything that we know so far about um, the potential spread of Burmese pythons is largely built upon climate envelope modeling. That is to say that we look at sort of the minimum and maximum thresholds that a species can survive in. And then we look at climate projections over time. And we extrapolate a potential map to see what sort of conditions in the future might be able to support that organism. But it's really important to understand when we do those models, we're using only a select suite of variables, usually maximum, minimum, daily temperatures, monthly temperatures, averages over time. What we don't factor in typically in these climate envelope models is um, things like habitat quality, things like prey availability, things like migration ability of the species. In other words, the terrain that they're moving through. Uh, even microclimates. And so 
any sort of climate modeling that you do is going to have necessarily a little bit of a, uh, an unknown, an uncertainty in there. That's not to say that it's not reliable. The climate space may shift even if the species physically can't for whatever reason. Mm. There is no doubt, based on the modeling that we've done, that over successive years, uh, climate conditions are going to become more conducive for pythons further and further north. It's just a matter of time. Now, whether the species is able to make that jump and at what time scale the species is going to be able to expand beyond where we find it presently, that's a difficult thing to, to gauge over time. But you're going to see a movement further north of these species in the long term. <laughs> and here's, here's some bad news. What we do know about this particular species, unlike things like Florida panthers, for example, that clearly have barriers to movement, these snakes can go anywhere they want to. And, um, and so I, I suspect there's nothing much in the way of physical barriers that's going to keep them from migrating further north and potentially even offshore to barrier islands. Oh, wow. <laughs> that, that could be a game changer <laughs> for sure. Um, you mentioned in the intro, this is, this is somewhat related, and I, I'm wondering if you have an opinion on this. You're talking about Damien, that display python that uh, you had in the fascination at the visitor center with, with that, and, and, uh, and the fascination that people have with exotic reptiles and snakes in general, and the incident with that couple who found a python in the park and wanted to take it to a breeder in town. I mean, do you think that this fascination, you know, love or hate or, or, or just, you know, curiosity has sort of, you know, fueled the abundance of invasive species that, you know, that behaviors like people capturing, you know, species for pets or wanting to breed them and then re-releasing them or, or the idea of having some of these potentially dangerous and invasive animals as pets. Do you think media attention and sort of sensational depictions of these animals has had any effect on those trends? I know that's kind of a difficult question to answer, but it's something in my field as a English professor and cultural critic, I kind of think about. And that's, there's a lot packed into that question, Chris. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> Let's start with the basics, right? Do we, do we have this lover version of snakes and what, and what fuels that, right? I mean, I think there's a lot of um, at least behavioral evolution theory that goes behind why we might innately not like these animals, right? Reaching back millennia to ancestors who evolved over time to appreciate that snakes potentially could be dangerous, therefore avoid. And those hardwired mechanisms within the brain may be really difficult to erase over time. Uh, they have a lot of staying power. Personally, anecdotally, and I've got no evidence to back this up, I can tell you that in my earlier in my career when I had a lot of face time with the public, I spent a lot of time introducing live reptiles, snakes in particular, thousands of kids, thousands. And, and what I can tell you is I don't think kids have an innate fear of snakes. Kids will instinctively reach out and grab it if you let them. Um, so from my personal experience, I think there is something to a learned aversion of, uh, of snakes. But to your point, whether you love them or whether you hate them, you are fascinated by them. We are all fascinated by these snakes, either fueled by fear or admiration. So that lends itself to at least people wanting to talk about it, seeing portrayals of it. It's a great story for that reason. Now, as for the pathway, you know, why do we have all of these exotic reptiles here? There is no question that the number one, the principal pathway for the introduction of most of these was through the pet trade. 
most, not all, some were stowaways on imported plants, but the vast majority, and this is research coming out of the University of Florida, Kenneth Crisco, who really did a deep dive on some of the origins of, of what we're grappling with today wild on the landscape. So many of them, overwhelming majority of reptile species in South Florida that were introduced came directly from the Petri. And so one of the most frustrating things I've, I've had to feel in the past, people are fascinated with figuring out who the boogeyman was for introducing Burmese pythons into the Everglades, right? And there's all these theories about, was it Hurricane Andrew? Did it toss this breeding facility with all these potential pet pythons? Did it toss it over into the Everglades? Remember how I said, despite all the effort we've, we've, we've put in on this, there are some things we're just not going to know. Yeah, um, I, I wanted to say just as a as a side note to or, or as we're wrapping up here, that is a great description of the Everglades in, in chapter one on pages six to nine about the flow of water and landscape. Marjorie Stoneman Douglas would be proud. <laughs> That's the only person I'm looking to impress. But thank you, Chris. I really no, it was great. I, I remember when I was flipping back through it, I was like, wow, it's pretty neat. You know, it, um, even when you're driving on Alligator Alley coming out of Fort Lauderdale and you look around and it's just, you know, you can see, you know, buildings like 10 miles away, like, wow, you know, it's just, uh, you really captured that, that sort of ethos. And then you have to imagine what if you weren't in sight of any road or anything like that and what that would be like. I, I um, It's a lot of fun. Yeah, I, I know. Um, Fakahatchee Strand is about as far as I've gotten in terms of hiking. So um, I'm gonna, we're gonna have to go back and plan a trip there someday. So anyway, Larry Perez, uh, thank you. I, I, I did wanna ask you, this is just out of curiosity and for our Florida loving listeners, what inspired you to go to Colorado? <laughs> that was work. I'm, I still work for the National Park Service, although uh, I had an opportunity to join a team out here in Colorado that focuses specifically on climate change impacts and solutions uh, to issues facing our national parks across the country, moving from you know Alaskan parks down to the lowlands of the Florida Everglades. So uh, it's, a, it's an issue that's near and dear to my heart, and I couldn't pass up the opportunity, even though it meant I had to leave my uh, beloved Florida behind, which I am forever going to be umbilically connected and, and invested in. <laughs> a great answer. There you go. Larry Perez, you're now a member of the Florida Book Club. Sweet. Thanks for coming aboard. Oh, my pleasure, Chris. Thanks so much. Thanks for attending this meeting of the Florida Book Club. So the takeaway is, we don't know what will happen with the invasive python population in Florida, especially as the planet warms. Still, no reason to monstrify these fascinating animals. And you can read much more about the issue in Larry Perez's Snake in the Grass. There's a link to purchase it on our website, along with some other interesting snake-related media. Remember to support your local independent bookstores and public libraries. See you at our next meeting.